0: this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. This podcast is part of a series showcasing past publications of the Champlain Society and my guest today is Norman Hilmer, Professor of History and International Relations at Carleton University. He edited the 2013 publication entitled O.D. Skelton, The Work of the World, 1923 to 1941. To talk about O.D. Skelton and about that volume, we reach Professor Hilmer at his home in Ottawa. Norman Hilmer, welcome to the mic.
1: Good afternoon, Patrice. It's good to hear your voice.
0: <laughs> so let's start with the obvious, uh, Norman. Who was O.D. Skelton? He was a professor.
1: and Before anyone turns their radio off, or turns their podcast off, I should say he was a professor who became... Canada's most influential public servant of the first half of the 20th century. He entered government in the 1920s and became Undersecretary of State for External Affairs, that is, Deputy Minister of the Department of External Affairs. And over the next 16 years until his death, he helped to shape foreign policy, and he worked to bring Canada an independent presence. So he built a Department of External Affairs. He did his best to build a, a distinctive Canadian way of looking at the world.
0: Now, this man is an as ac- you say is an academic, but he's a good solid liberal, isn't he? Is he not?
1: Oh yes, uh, <laughs> he, he's capital L liberal. Uh, he was a Laurier liberal. He was the biographer of Laurier, and the adoring biographer of Laurier, and he he. He was Laurier's biographer and uh, an enormous admirer, indeed a lover of Laurier. And um, when Mackenzie King became leader of the Liberal Party after Laurier's death, Skelton uh, inveigled his way into the good graces of the new leader, uh, knowing exactly how to flatter him, exactly how to make himself useful to him. And soon he was indispensable.
0: Now, he's a professor at Queen's University. Yes. What what kind of academic was he? It wasn't just, it wasn't just about Laurier and, and uh, his letters, was it?
1: We can talk about two things, I think. One is that uh, his University of Chicago thesis is on Marxism and socialism, and he uh, writes a book based on his thesis, which is a critique of socialism, which becomes... Um, internationally famous, so much so that he had a reputation as having had his book buried with Lenin in Lenin's tomb in Russia. This was, this was pure myth, but spoke to Skelton's enormous reputation. Lenin was clearly an admirer of Skelton's criticism of socialism, so he had that international reputation. But at Queen's, he was a good teacher of pragmatic politics he wanted to have his students uh, do practical things, he want them to be great scholars. He wanted them to be great citizens, and he wanted them to, um, to go into government or go wherever they might go and build this country. And so he, he taught in a very practical way.
0: And I guess he taught by example because he decides mid-career to change trajectory completely and, and join the bureaucracy in Ottawa. What prompted him to do that? I think he always wanted that.
1: Uh, When the Department of External Affairs was formed as a tiny little several-person organization over a barber shop on Spark Street in Ottawa, uh, Skelton wrote to his mentor to say, I see that a Department of External Affairs has been formed. Uh, It's a mighty good billet to be the head of that department. And uh, what, 16 years later, he became uh, the head of that department.
0: Now, did he come to the job with a certain idea of what Canada's place in the world should be? The document, the, the book we're talking about here, The Work of the World, is um, his writings, his memoranda, his letters, his, his diary entries. What was his idea of Canada in the world when he becomes a member of the bureaucracy, the deputy minister, as you say, of external affairs?
1: He wanted an independent Canada. He wanted a Canada that wasn't going to be the echo of any other country, not an echo of of Britain, certainly, not even an echo of the United States. He felt very friendly towards the United States, and he always talked about being a good North American, but that was his way of creating an antidote to too much European militarism and British imperialism. He wanted an independent country. He was careful about how he said it. He was always a good politician, and Canadians weren't ready for independence, but that was his mission. That was his goal.
0: Was it the First World War that changed his views, or did he always have views like that?
1: He always had views like that, Mm -hmm. and in the First World War, he changed those views right at the beginning, I think, realizing that English Canada, uh, and even, to some extent, French Canada, was involving itself in the war in a very committed way, and he went in that same direction. But when conscription came along, when his adored Laurier began to be called a traitor in English Canada, uh, Skelton went with him, uh, opposed conscription, and began to say, you know what, this is just the Brits doing it to us again, using us as a public convenience.
0: Now, he joins government uh, at the behest of Mackenzie King. It's Mackenzie King who brings him in. What was his relationship like with Mackenzie King?
1: They were a good married couple. (laughs) They uh, were very respectful of one another. Each gave the other what they needed.
0: Does that mean they They fought sometimes?
1: Well, they did fight. Uh, (laughs) We might talk about that in a minute. But King gave Skelton power and influence, mm. which is what Skelton desperately wanted. And he he allowed Skelton to become very important, to be the crucial man of the government, more than anyone else except perhaps Ernest Lapointe, who was the Quebec lieutenant of King for all those years. So King got something too, and King got a man who never, who never failed him. In King's diary, he said, Skelton never fails.
0: Mm. In your rich book of um, Skelton documents, there is a wonderful entry and I'd like to focus on that for a, a minute or two. Um, and I will, we'll have it on the website. It's document 76 uh, as part of, uh, of your book, The Work of the World. And it goes like this. It's, this is a, a, a handwritten diary of uh, Oscar Skelton and it's dated 23rd of September, 1938. And we're just going to read a paragraph of it and I'll start right now. War shadows looming thicker the UK Dominion office cables became increasingly alarming with their indication of Hitler's unyielding arrogance and the probability of the negotiations breaking off on his demand for Sudeten areas be at once taken over by German troops. Massey's telegrams from London indicated a rapid stiffening of opinion, particularly among the Tories and Chamberlain's growing readiness to break off. Just afternoon came a Reuters dispatch through Canadian press, telling of Sudeten and Nazi storm troops crossing into Czechoslovakia and being resisted. Phoned to Mr. King. At two, the Canadian press said Reuters had killed this despatch, but the damage was done here. Mr. King, when I phoned this to Laurier House, said that he had come to the conclusion it was necessary to call counsel to consider the situation at four. He came down about two ten to four, and I found him in an exalted imperial-cum-democracy-and-freedom mood, very belligerent. He had come to take my view of Hitler, that the world had come to the crossroads, must decide whether men were to be ruled by reason or force, might or right, blood or persuasion, brute or God, matter or spirit, paganism or Christianity. No question where Canada should stand in such a crisis opinion in Canada, and every country should rally against Germany. Wave of emotion and demands would flood Canada. Here, C.P. Reuters report negotiations broken off because Hitler declined assurances. Therefore, we should issue a statement now asking people to be calm and trust the government. So I repeat, that's the 23rd of September, 1938. When you hear that document, Norman, what goes through your mind? Skelton is writing this, presumably at home after a long day's work. What's going through his mind?
1: What's going through his mind is that all his work for Canadian independence was going down the drain. Mm -hmm. That the Prime Minister was going to do what Prime Minister Borden had done in 1914. He was going to snap a salute and follow Britain into war. And Skelton tried to talk him down from this. said, you know... um, Be reasonable, Mr. King. It's not all is lost. Uh, um, We don't know that war is coming, Um, and and just be careful. You know, you're a careful man. Don't go overboard here. Don't feel the need to um, to publicize the fact that we're in a war which has not yet come.
0: And King, I think will listen to him, won't he? I mean, counsel. There will be a few people of Cabinet that will come together at, at precisely 4 o'clock, and they'll debate. This comes out of your book again. This They'll they'll, they'll debate for a while, and Cabinet really does press on King not to go forward with, with any rash announcement, does it not?
1: It does, but it also says that we're with you in supporting Britain in a war should it come. Mm. And even the French members. Now, Ernest Lapointe, who was Skelton's buddy, was out of the country at the time, and he later came in on Skelton's side. But Skelton, um, Skelton's mood now is to say, all those years that I have worked to make us come to a place where we can make our own decisions about our own destiny, it's gone. It's gone. Mm.
0: Many people consider his greatest legacy was not his ideas, but the people he hired. What are your thoughts on that? What kind of people was Oscar Skelton looking for?
1: Before we say who he hired, and that was pretty crucial, we need to say that even more important is that he was hiring those people in order to create a distinctive Canadian voice in the world. He was hiring people, young people. They were called Skelton's men. only men in those days were appointed to... Uh, jobs in in the Department of External Affairs he was uh, forming a foreign office we didn't really have one sure we invented one back in 1909 but it wasn't a serious institution he was inventing a foreign office so that we could have a foreign policy and so that we could have a canadian foreign policy we didn't have to listen to the brits or listen to the americans and go by what they're telling us we'd have our own sources of information.
0: So to remind our listeners of the kind of people you hired, I mean, some names do come up pretty quickly. Lester Pearson's one of them.
1: Yes, Lester Pearson is one of the first people who gets hired, and there are other names which would be lesser known to Canadians now, but they were very, very important diplomats. Uh, Hume Wrong was one. Um, Norman Another Robertson. was Norman Robertson. Mm-hmm. And in the late 1940s, after Skelton had died, Pearson and Robertson and Wrong were at the center of the department. They had the most important jobs, and this was known around the world as the best small foreign office on the globe. This was skelton's creation and and it was important, but it was it was a vehicle for Skelton to put in place something concrete. It wasn't just an idea of Canadian independence. It was a it was a, a concrete expression of it.
0: And it's again it's worth saying that it was a robust policy shop that he set up. I mean, Canada will go obviously into the Second World War, but come out of it as a as an able participant in the United Nations and the Bretton Woods conference, uh, deploying a liberal internationalism through the late 1940s and into the 1950s. That would have been the brainchild of Oscar Skelton, would it not?
1: Well, it was. Now, as far as the robust policy shop was concerned, when he was alive, the contradiction is that he insisted on running it as pretty much as a one-man show. And there was a lot of frustration among his policy officers. Most of them loved him, because he was a pretty lovable guy in many respects, even mm. though rather distant uh, in other respects but he dominated the place. So it wasn't a collegial atmosphere. The
0: the, the habits of an independent scholar kept shining through? <laughs> Absolutely
1: right. And uh, so in that sense, the robust policy shop came about after he died, but as a result of all those good hires that he made.
0: Now, there's a tragedy here. He died early. Can you tell us what happened that day?
1: He woke up that morning. He um, told his um, cleaner, his his maid, that he had bought her a war bond because it was early in the Second World War. Uh, this is 1941, and he took a little nap, which was unlike him to do. Um, he then uh, went down to the department, had an ordinary morning, and went off as he often did in his car to lunch. And the lady who served him said, "Doctor Skelton, you don't look well." And he he tapped his heart and he said, "Bad heart." So he rushed through his meal as he always did got in his car, drove down Medcalf where it meets Sparks, and he had a heart attack and it was fatal. And the car slid into a streetcar and um, his wife got a call saying uh, there's a man named Skelton at the hospital. She thought it was the son who was always getting into scrapes, but in fact it was Oscar and he was gone. He had had a heart attack in 1937 and he never recovered fully from it. He was a workaholic and mckinsey King worked him in a cruel and unusual way.
0: King will lose two of his, his uh, most trusted advisors. Ernest Lapointe will die the same year.
1: Yes, and Lorraine Christie, uh, who we talked about in another broadcast, who was the senior part of um, the, uh, the skeleton department, uh, also died in that year. So. Right. It was uh, it was a cruel year, but it was interesting that uh, Mackenzie King would write in his diary, "I'm being taught here. I relied too much on these guys. I need to be my own man more." So, always, always, King brings it back to himself in a in a in a way which is, in human terms, disreputable.
0: Yes. Now you've put this fantastic collection of documents together. What prompted you to do that? What, uh, what, what makes this collection significant in your mind?
1: What makes it significant is that it's not just policy documents. I had these policy documents for years, but I didn't really know about the humanity that lay behind them. Mm-hmm. Everyone always said that Skelton's papers were destroyed in a fire, and they were indeed. Uh, there was a fire at his son's house after, after uh, Oscar Skelton's death, and there were no Skelton papers. I interviewed um his daughter, and she told me there were no skeleton papers, but in the nineteen nineties they discovered, or perhaps they always knew that there were thirteen boxes of skeleton papers, and the daughter was reluctant to let these things out, you know who knew what was in the diary, who knew what kind of insults there might be, what people might get hurt, how people might get hurt uh she became ill and her husband a distinguished diplomat and one of the last appointees of Skelton in the, in the department uh before his his death um uh, went to the archives and uh took those boxes down and gave them to the archives and in those 13 boxes is not a huge amount are some diaries not very much every year, because you know what happens. You are a good diarist in January, and then it falls off. But it was a lot of wonderful material. And then, too, there were over 40 years Skelton's letters to his wife, and occasionally his her letters to him. That made him a man rather than an institution. And I wanted, in the Champlain series book, to not just have a dry series of memoranda about what to do about Hitler, rather to know what he was writing in his diary, what he was writing to his wife, what he was feeling in his heart as well as in his mind.
0: Now, you're still limited by the cruel uh, publishers of the Champlain Society in terms of how much you can put into a book. Um, did you leave much out? Is there a lot of material that you would wished you could have put in? or
1: You know, I felt that there was a good balance and I didn't have a whole lot of, I only had those 13 boxes and i certainly could have put in more policy memoranda but uh, because skelton was an academic he wrote these long documents footnoted <laughs> and uh and it was uh, shall we say um well hard going sometimes yes and uh, so i didn't want to publish very many more of those and i think i published pretty much all the good parts of the diaries and letters um, and then of course, when I wrote the biography, I had a chance to, um, use some more of those documents. So I have no complaints about you at the Champlain society. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that the work that you do and have done for so many years is, um, is one of the great nation building, uh, projects, you know, it goes back so far. And now, um, Champlain society has brought the, series into the 20th century so you do the older stuff but you also do newer things like my my book and i'm enormously grateful
0: well we're the ones who are grateful because it's a wonderful book and i'm sure that our listeners will want to go back to it if they if they skipped over parts because i think that it is a a rich enlightening collection of great writing and certainly a window on the world of ottawa and how Ottawa perceived the world through the eyes of O.D. Skelton. Thank you, Norman. Thanks for speaking with us.
1: All the best, Patrice.
0: I was speaking with Norman Hilmer. He was the editor of the 2013 Champlain Society volume entitled O.D. Skelton, The Work of the World. He's also published a companion biography called O.D. Skelton, A Portrait of Canadian Ambition, published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on February 11, 2019, and it was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.